Welcome to the Expeditioners Podcast, where we speak with the folks who are leading the way in IT and security. I'm your host, Zach Wasserman, CTO of Fleet and co-creator of OS Prairie. Now, on with the expedition. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm here today with Charles Edge, who's self-describes as an old-school Mac guy. Uh, he's <laughs> one of the hosts of the Mac Admins podcast. He's a, a CTO at a VC firm and working on some uh, cool new Apple uh, security and IT management software in his own startup. So a whole range of experience. Thanks for coming on the show, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Uh, well, really looking forward to digging into your your whole story of uh, past, present, and and future that you're getting ready to write. But uh, I always like to start with the past. You know, you've been you've been in this Apple world for a while. Again, self-describing as old school Mac guy. So I'd love to hear the story of how'd you get into how'd you get into Mac IT and security, and and what kind of brings you uh, up up to where you're at today. Yeah, um, I mean. First gig in Mac IT would probably be in high school when we got a lab of Mac SEs. And here I am with like DA font mover, trying to figure out <clears throat> how to get a whole bunch of Macs to uh, look really similar for my teacher who was an English teacher and was just obsessed with the fact that you could use wingdings to put <laughs> images you know, it was it was a different time. Um, they weren't networked, uh, so it was, you know, floppy disks and um, really old school management <laughs> techniques, I guess. <laughs> wow, wingdings! I don't think I've heard wingdings referenced for quite a while. I guess since emojis came out and Unicode. Mm. <laughs> right. <laughs> For the I, I have a podcast on the history of computers and I did a whole thing on Unicode. <laughs> so nice. And how they led to wingdings and you know, it's it's a fun story if you're into standards bodies, which is probably the most boring thing you can be into. <laughs> I, I I mean I, I think that the whole Unicode and emojis is as as far as I know one of the more interesting standards bodies uh, stories out there. So I'll, I'll be curious to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I, I'm sorry and I interrupted you. So we so you were you're in high school here and I'll note you don't even mention this on on your LinkedIn. Come on, man. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Well, they didn't pay me except for in better grades, maybe. I don't know. I was I was in AP computer science, and my big thing was I needed my Pascal programs to, to run on all the machines. Little did I know that when I went to, um, to do bigger stuff that it would all be on Windows at that point in time. And so my version of Pascal was a little wrong. Um, Things work differently. My programs didn't work properly. And back then, you only had access to a computer for a limited period of time every day. So we were writing code on paper and then key, keying it in when we got to class. And, you know, it's just, it was different. Now I can see live versions of, of my Swift UI and Xcode, you know. <laughs> so it's better now, obviously. So how did you evolve from sort of high school tinker for grades into kind of professional Mac IT and security? 
Yeah, I I went more into the Unix side after college, um, computer science in college, and then doing more Unix type programming, which being there when Exchange was written led to kind of Exchange admin stuff. And um, I was working for Accenture after college. And then my, um, or Anderson Consulting back then, because I'm old. <laughs> but uh, but I was, I, I bounced around from uh, assignments, I guess you'd call it, in Germany and London and a few other places. And finally, they, they put me in Santa Monica, California. And after six months in Santa Monica, they're like, and now we want you to go to Detroit. And I'm like, you know, I think I'll start my own company. So I started a small consultancy. And I happened to be doing Unix stuff right when Mac OS X came out. So the next thing I know, my small consultancy had 50 people. And I'd written a few books on Mac OS X, Mac OS X server. And... Yeah, I, I sold that, went to work for Jamf, um, helped write Jamf Now. I, I spearheaded that effort. So building an MDM myself was a whole new journey. Um, and I hadn't been doing programming for a while, so getting reacclimated with how Java, JavaScript, um, you know, the emergence of Go, microservice-oriented architectures, stuff like that, was, uh, was a nice learning experience. Um, and then left that to take on the, the job doing VC stuff. And yeah, it's, it's pretty short history, really. I haven't had that many jobs compared to some people. It sounds like a really interesting mix of kind of the business side and the, and the technical side. What, what, what would you say, like, what are you most drawn to these days? Uh, I, I still like having my my feet in both. Um, I think on the business side, I enjoy finance more than management, if that makes sense. Um, I like managing small scrum teams of high performers. I don't like managing large organizations, uh, 100, 500, 2000 people. I, I've been there, done that and don't want to do it again. Um, but on the business, you know, there's a lot of stuff in business, fundraising, um, finance, uh, sales. I, I enjoy all those things, but I don't, um, I don't love getting into the frontline management, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that, that totally makes sense. And so I guess in, in this role as CTO at the VC firm these days, do you get to kind of play around on, on both sides of that with the companies that you're working with? Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of VCs are also venture studios. Yeah. Um, so the Venture Studio, uh, you know, that's where we're writing our own software. So not just deploying capital to small startups and then either taking board seats or advisory roles, but going a step further and actually hiring our own scrum team, writing our own tools. And when I was working, I, I wrote a 2000 page book, which is currently being edited for a tech to be a textbook on the history of computers. And when I was working on that, I ran into some dead ends that we've encountered in technology where there were good ideas and we didn't go further. And some are out of patent. So, you know, post 19 years, you can pick it back up and run with it. Um, I took a few detours that were taken with public key cryptography and kind of went a, a little further 
and started working on post-quantum or quantum-safe cryptography. And so that's where Secret Chess came in, where I'm like, you know, all the password managers work the same. So let's uh, let's try to rethink this and merge a few concepts like MFA and or 2FA and um, password management and pass key management and, you know, so that's, I, I'd say that's the thing that's taking up a bunch of my time. I, I do still sit and listen to five or six startups a day pitch me on why we should invest in them and all the, all the fun things that go into working at a VC firm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really cool. And, and you, so you mentioned secret chess and, and I'm super interested. I think our listeners will be really interested as well and i heard you say all the all the current password managers work the same could you characterize like wh what what is that mechanism that's the same about all of those and then kind of use that to lead yeah. into you know, what you're doing at secret chess yeah so they're all pretty much encrypted sqlite databases and this includes apple's keychain um one password etc not to badmouth the competition but we haven't released yet so i don't feel like we have competition but <laughs> Um, but what our password or what our patent covers is the ability to use the TPM chip built into every platform now. I mean, if you buy a Surface laptop in order to run the latest version of Windows, it has to have a TPM chip. Um, Apple on the Apple side, we've obviously had the secure enclave for a long time. So let's shard passwords and then um, into let's say five, you know, three to ten shards. And then let's encrypt each shard with the TPM on the local devices that we distri distribute the shards to. And that unlocks a whole bunch of interesting workflows. Like on the DevSecOps side, I can say, in order to get access to my um, SSL certificate to compile the next version of my app, I will deliver that only at the time that four of the six shards are available. Um, and those shards are actually distributed on multiple humans' devices in that case. So, um, you know, the difference there between the MFA of the day is that the secret's not on one device. It is sharded across multiple devices and at least X number of devices, and X being configurable, have to be on in order to, and... and authenticated using the biometrics on that device, you know, touch ID, base ID, et cetera, in order for that secret to be delivered to where we want it to be delivered to. And that delivery might be an autofill because it is an autofill extension, um, which Apple, you know, has done a great job of documenting. That might be an SSL key in order to, um, in, in order to do a thing. It might be a pass key uh, because, um, Apple has opened that API up as well. Uh, so, you know, it, that's why we call it secret chest instead of password chest, I guess. But also we call it secret chest because I name all my betas after D&D &D spells. So, <laughs> and normally I just look around for like, can I buy a domain for something? <laughs> like, is mistystep.com open or... <laughs> <laughs> you get some definite bonus uh, geek cred for the D and D references for oh, sure. <laughs> so with the so then with the TP 
with the TPMs, this also means that these are kind of non-extractable secrets. Like you're, you're talking, someone has to actually have physical access to these devices oh, yeah. to do this. Yeah. So that, yeah. I, I suppose that's a big difference between like an encrypted SQLite database where I assume they're probably using yeah. like some kind of symmetric encryption. So well, not just secret. that. There are SQLite databases that sync. So, you know, if you if you think about it, like in lock picking um, at the DEFCON lock picking village, that's where I learned that useful skill. But you know, if you think about lock picking, if there's a master key, and if there are multiple keys keyed to a door, um, then it's easier to pick the lock because you know there's there's multiple ways. So. Um, Apple's done a great job with Keychain. We actually use Keychain to store our shards. So what I like to think of this as is Keychain 2, if Apple were to build Keychain 2. Um, and, you know, I, I applaud their move towards passwordless, but it's all still stored in Keychain, basically. And with iCloud Keychain, there's just multiple ways to get at stuff with one password. There, you know, any any of them, LastPass, et cetera, there's multiple ways to get at things and they're all syncing around whether it's firefox or chrome or even microsoft vault you know so what what we were trying to do is say okay let's say that there's a grid of supercomputers because there is in every major power um state sponsored wise um and 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 how can we protect against that and you know microsoft's got a team of extremely talented um quantum cryptography uh, PhDs, postdocs, um, and they're trying to build bigger and better key links. But you know, with Moore's law, and who knows the impact uh, um, of of quantum cryptography on all this, or quantum decryptography, I guess. Um, you know, I I don't know that we're solving the problem in, in the right way. So I started thinking asymmetrically about it. No pun intended, and. You know what I came up with and patented was, yeah, let's just shard it and keep each piece on different things, and then um, even if someone manages to decrypt the SQLite database or one of the four that you've got syncing around, um, you know, it's uh, it's only in memory uh, in a Swift app basically at the time that it's delivered, and then it gets destroyed and uh, resharded if that makes sense. Well, very, it's very interesting. And it brings up for me, uh, I'm often thinking about sort of trade-offs between usability and, and security and, and, you know, kind of what uh, as well, you know, as a vendor of, of security software, you know, what organizations will want to go to the efforts to, to get this kind of level of protection and what does the user experience actually look like? Do you have thoughts? I mean, I know you said this, you're pre-release now, but do you have thoughts on kind of who will be working with Secret Chest or at least who the kind of original <laughs> customers will be? I mean, I anything from small business to large development teams, um, you know, the, the thing that we tried to do was make it as simple as you get like in a typical autofill flow, you, let's say, go to Etsy and you go to enter your password and then you touch ID and it autofills the password. In our scenario, you touch ID and then you face ID or you enter a pin on your watch 
that's it. It's one extra step. But now the secrets are, I don't think we can really call them quantum safe, but the secrets are much more secure than they are in that, in that traditional flow. And, you know, I, I, I read articles about people stealing phones and accessing all that information that's in those keychains because they looked over your shoulder while you were typing in a pen or something. That obviously shouldn't really be possible in a face ID type situation, but, you know, um, there are lots of secrets that are worth a lot more. Um, and, and you see really crafty, uh, sometimes state sponsored, but you see really crafty exploits trying to get at them. So, um, but I, we did try to rewrite it in such a way that anyone can use it. So whether it's a small business and it's like all these things cost about the same with every vendor. So if you just maintain the same pricing structure, but you're infinitely more secure and you unlock a whole bunch of workflows, like, you know, we definitely had a focus from day one on architecturally. Um, if you're a business using it, Auth0 makes that free basically. So, you know, that's, that's a pretty easy thing to get. But then also since it's net new software, it's like, okay, well, let's make um, every endpoint web hookable. So if you want to hook this into a SIM and do analysis, like anomaly analysis, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, and also just data exfiltration analysis. So, you know, um, and then making everything API first. So, oh, you can hook it into any old workflow. You know, it doesn't have to be just deliver an SSL cert to a place or a J JWT based on, you know, some transaction that you're trying to do. Um, you know, all those secrets in Postman, there's tons of stuff all over my machine that I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, how do I protect that? How do I protect that? You know, every time I, I do a commit, I'm like, oh, I, I've got something else I should add to that, you know. Well, this all sounds really interesting and wishing you the best of luck uh, getting Thanks. it to launch. Any <laughs> idea what the what the timeline looks like for launching it? Um, right now it's in a very private beta. So there's a sign up at secretchest.io. Um, and I, I would say uh, our investors, which are us, uh, really want this out the door soon. So, <laughs> so hopefully real soon. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Really cool. And Charles, you mentioned earlier as well that you're releasing a, did you say 2000 page textbook on the history of computing? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that and how did you end up doing that? I mean, it's, that seems like something that would be, be hard to do on accident. Yeah. I, I mean, it was an accident. I meant to write, I mean, I've written about two dozen books and I thought this one would be yet another you know, three to 600 page books somewhere in there. And then I started getting people like who invented data packets, uh, agree to talk to me. And the further I dug, I, I started out with this idea that it would be a collection of short stories kind of about the people who moved things forward. Um, and then what I started to realize is that there was this slow evolution going back to, you know, the Greeks <laughs> in, like, Thales of Greece, maybe, in negative 600. Um, and, and so building on top of that, like, the history of clockworks, the history of 
finance, how we finance innovation. Um, and, and then, you know, once you hit the 1940s, this rapid acceleration of, of what we're doing. And so I would say the first quarter of the book was that old school stuff. And then, um, mainframes, mini computers, time sharing, uh, the development of standards bodies, which I found fascinating, but I'm a really boring person. So of course I would. <laughs> um, and, and the next thing I knew, it just kept growing till it got to be too big for the binding. Um, and, and a book with my normal publisher who luckily owns a is owned by a textbook publisher. So, um, a press, it moved from probably a press to Springer nature and right. I, I don't know how long it'll take the postdocs to fact check me on everything because for example, stock prices changed quite drastically in the past couple of years and other things where it's being edited by, uh, people who should be writing textbooks because <laughs> you know? I don't have a PhD. So, yeah. Oh, this sounds, this sounds fascinating. And I, I think I, I'd be particularly interested in the older kind of pre, uh, pre computers or pre electronic computers history and, and understanding how that, that all links up. So uh, very yeah, cool. The Islamic golden age was a golden age of that, like mechanical computing. And then, yeah, that that was one of the most fun sections to write for me. The pre-solid state electronic era, which wow. was six seven hundred years worth. But <laughs> wow, so cool, so cool. So you're, I, I mean, you're like, you're intimately familiar with the history of all of this, and and you're working on some really interesting tech at the moment, and and obviously you've worked on on you know, this, this Mac IT and security stuff for a long time. I always like to ask folks, you know, what, what do you think over the next five years, what will be the biggest changes in the lives of folks doing uh, IT and, and security and, and enterprises, particularly in, with the Mac focus, but kind of anywhere that, that comes to mind for you? Yeah, I, I think historically with computers in general, we see a a structure where a programming paradigm starts to change the way we think about things in general, and especially with managing devices, I'd say, because it's much more adjacent. So Apple has embraced the, with SwiftUI, they very much embraced the um, declarative programming kind of methodology, if you'd call it that. And I, I think... Um, with declarative device management, we see the first step of that, but I, I think it will be pervasive across a lot of things. Um, and we already see this with, uh, with Amazon and how I can set up or, or Google Cloud function or you know the whole Google stack, I guess, how I can bring up an environment um, with a playbook, AKA a YAML file, a JSON file, an XML file, that defines um, all the elements that need to go in. So putting everything where it needs to be in order for a desired state to be there. And I, I remember um, it was actually Jesse Endall who I who implanted this in my head first, I think. Um, I, I think we had him on the Mac Edmonds podcast maybe, and he was talking about it. I can't remember the exact context, but it, 
I, I, I very much want to make sure to give him credit for this thinking and not me, but he was talking about the desired state of, of a device. And I think now we kind of tend to drift towards more of a declarative um, interpretation of that or, or the word that we used. But anyways, I, I do think it was Jesse who turned me on to that idea. And I, I think it's become much more pervasive. I, I feel like first with AWS, but now with Apple device management and, you know, even with uh, some JavaScript or some Go that I'm writing, you know, it, it tends to, uh, I, I tend to drift towards that, that declarative um, way. And I, I think the way that that impacts the end user should be fairly transparent. And by the end user, I mean the person managing devices, not the person using them. And because if we're thinking about that in the lens of the end user of the MDM or the device management stack, um, they they shouldn't notice. They should just define the state they want, and then we should declaratively pass it to our logic engines and make it happen, if that makes sense, and report back when it doesn't. But um, I think the impact that the end user, as in the device manager, will will see is just more faster innovation um, because there's not all this tech debt of the old way of doing things and Apple's handling a lot of things. I think what will be frustrating for a couple of years when we start to see this manifest will be how do, how do all of the desired states that I define composite um, because I don't know that until I start sending them to devices, unless, like in Active Directory, we used to have tools to, to show us this. Yeah, that 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 totally makes sense to me, and that's something that that we've thought about as we develop kind of uh, configuration as code for for Fleet and the work that we're doing with OS query configurations and telemetry, like. Yeah, as you give people different ways to target configurations, how do you merge those and make sure that the admins can make sense of that? Um, yep. But yeah, it's it, it's really interesting to hear you talking about it in that way because that also aligns with kind of my thoughts about what what declarative MDM really really means for the the again the end user as being the admin. And I do really see the declarative MDM, you know, new specifications and and implementation as being, uh, I conceptualize it as a bit of a kind of an assembly language. And, and you know, as MDM vendors, we're probably gonna give the users higher level primitives, but we're gonna be building on, uh, on a, a more kind of hopefully reliable core and, and foundation. And that's gonna lead to, you know, once we kind of work out the, these UX challenges, that's gonna lead to more reliability. So you mentioned high-level primitives. So like Apple can give us type definitions. They can give us all kinds of stuff. And then we can build on top of it. And I think that's definitely the direction they're going. Um, I, I think whatever declarative device management is to use that uh, specifically today will not be what it is in a couple of years when I think it will be all-encompassing and we'll start to retire all the old ways of doing things and... Um, and that's gonna that's that's gonna create a couple of scenarios for admins, like anyone who's not really tech forward with this, uh, as far as the NVM vendors who support Apple, are gonna get pushed out of the space because their stuff's just not gonna work anymore. 
Um, and then anyone who has been really tech forward, I think that's where we'll see a leap in kind of the innovation and the workflows that we're able to build for people to be able to deploy faster. You know, and I won't be building another MDM, just throwing that out there. But <laughs> but I, 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 I do use MDMs uh, both at home and at work. Um, and uh, every now and then I still consult on it. But, you know, that's... Um, that's kind of what I see happening there. Um, and you mentioned OS query. I would very much like to see the ability to still run agents on a Mac, even if I have to do so inside the context of an app. So like, oh, I load an app and then I put OS query in the app or FS query if, uh, if I want to get old school fleet smithy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, I, I don't know how how much I'll be able to do in those contexts in two to six years or whatever time frame there is for that. Um, but I, I do think all that stuff's going to have to move into the app. And so when it comes to um, substantiating a system extension and then how to activate it, it's like, oh, well, I assume an agent, like an, something running OS query, as an example, inside an app, would have a system extension that would need to be invoked. And, um, and in order for all that stuff to be put in place, that would be deployed through MDM. So, you know, once again, we see where MDM, I, I think three years ago, maybe it was a, everybody should have it. And I think in three years, everybody has to have it or none of the agents are going to work. Definitely. So. Yeah. And I think that we're already we're already pretty much there and I see the momentum yeah. headed that direction. <laughs> right. Yeah. Unless you want to be taking floppies around <laughs> to load up your agent manually. You're, you're living proof buttons. that it works. <laughs> yeah. Or it did in the nineties, <laughs> but a lot of things worked great in the nineties. You know, it was, it was a different time. <laughs> right. I don't even live in Portland, whatever. <laughs> Well, Charles, thank you so much for joining the the show today. I think uh, it's really fascinating the the range of things that you work on, and I know I'm certainly looking forward to uh, following what what happens with with Secret Chest, and will be curious to uh, to see the release of your textbook. It's really exciting stuff. That will not be exciting. <laughs> because <laughs> it's a textbook, but thanks for saying that. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. I, it's it's uh, super fun to just get to geek out. And, you know, um, normally I'm on the other side asking the questions, so I'm not quite as good on this side, <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> well, we love it. And thanks, listeners, for tuning in. Till next time. Till next time.